Well, good morning again. Welcome to all 12 of us in the room. Does it feel like that? I heard someone say, there's no one around me. <laughs> You're here. The cool people are here. Yeah, we are in the house. It means that we are just going to need to become an army this morning, right? Um, anyway, it's cool. It is good to see you guys. It is good to be back. Um, Jason and I, well, I will not speak for you, Jason. You, maybe you didn't miss these people, but I did. I missed you. Um, we had a great week of refreshing at Cannon Beach at a pastor's conference. Um, and then we sort of hopped on an airplane and went to Arizona for sun and meetings together. So it was really cool. Um, and I'm just stoked to get back and... Uh, march ahead towards whatever God has for us um, in store. So let's go, huh? I don't know what we're going for, but we got some exciting stuff coming up. So you'll need to put your seatbelts on next week during announcements because I got a lot to tell you, but I'm holding it all here just to solidify it all and make sure it's going to work. Um, but one thing I did want to share with you, and for those of you at home, um, if you have given to Brookview in 2021, financially supported and what God is doing here. We want you to know that your um, year-end giving statements went out in the mail yesterday, and those should be hitting your mailboxes on Monday or Tuesday. If you do not get yours, we really want to hear from you. We want you to be able to use those for your tax purposes. And the way that you would reach out to us to let us know, hey, I don't have what I think I need, um, would be to email brookviewgiving at gmail.com. And we will um, get you set as the best we can and get to the bottom of whatever's going on. Um, but more than that business thing, I just want to say thank you. And thank you for those of you that have supported the church in this really tough season. I cannot imagine having gone through COVID also wondering how we were going to pay the bills. And that has just been such a sweet, sweet gift. So thank you for your partnership with the work that we get to do here and beyond these four walls. So um, I'm just grateful. And thank you for the way that God is is using you in that and your sacrifice of finances and some things that you would much prefer to spend your money on, so we are grateful. Um, also, we'd love to hear from you. It is so fun for us when we get communication cards, when we hear prayer needs that you guys have, and just things that are going in your life. Um, the can of hands, we love it when you let us know you're watching online, and it's so cool when we see that. And we know that our room here is small, but oftentimes the greater room is bigger, and that's really encouraging and life-giving to know that we may not all be in the same place at the same time, but we are unified together in that online realm. So who would have thunk it um, that here we are? So happy to be here. I'm excited for what God has for us this morning, because Jason, do you feel pent up at all? Yeah. <clears throat> all right, come bring it then. Woo! 
Have you guys ever considered how much of your life is just the sum of your choices? Like every single day you make innumerable choices. What you will feed your mind, what thoughts you will dwell on, who you will have conversations with, who you won't have conversations with, where you will direct your desires, how you'll take care of your body, when you will choose to allow yourself to be interrupted, and when you will choose to stay on task. All of these are calls that you make all day, every day, and when you add them up, they create your life. And no one else can make your choices for you. They're up to you, and they matter. And great lives are really just a sum of great choices. My point is, we often have a whole lot more say-so than we realize. We can start to sort of get into this rut where we feel like life just sort of happens to us. And that's true, it does. But at the same time, we have so many choices about how we react. It's been said that life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. Have you guys heard that? I don't know if that's true at all. Uh, I could, it could be totally arbitrary. I mean, honestly, I don't even know how you'd go about quantifying that. But I really like the point that it makes. We always have real say-so. And the more you become aware of how many choices are up to you, the more equipped you are to embrace the opportunities that are flooding your direction. No one else can make your choices for you. No one else can live your life for you. And one of the mindsets that can lead to a lesser life is the feeling of having no control. The sense that everything just happens to me. I, I don't have any real choices. I don't have any real say. I'm just kind of a victim of, of circumstance. There's nothing I can do about it. In every circumstance, you have choices. Not that you can control all the outcomes, right? You can't. But you always have choices, and your choices really matter. So even when life goes completely sideways and you're stuck in a situation, you have choices. So today, as, as we continue to think about this, this concept of simplicity, I want to think with you about the simplicity of making choices. Because the people who, who lead the great lives are the people who make great choices. And in Scripture, one of the best decision makers was a guy named Daniel. And so to kind of launch us in today, I want us to think about his situation that we see at the very beginning of the book that has his name to it, and then how he responded. Um, in the first several verses of the book, named for Daniel, we encounter a person who was a victim of circumstances that were way beyond his control. King Nebuchadnezzar conquered Daniel's land in Israel and carried him into exile in Babylon. Daniel, we think about it, he lost his freedom, he lost his home, he lost his culture, he lost his friends and family, he lost his status as nobility, he had to learn to speak a foreign language and live and die in a place that he never wanted to be. Get this, he even lost his name. Like his Hebrew name, his Jewish name was Daniel and it meant the Lord will judge but he was not even called Daniel anymore. He was given a new Babylonian name because they're like, we don't know how to say Daniel. They called him Belteshazzar because that's way easier. <laughs> as sort of this subtle, for Daniel, it served as this subtle, uh, not so subtle reminder that, that he, was, he wasn't even in control of his own identity, his own name. 
I mean, if, if I had been Daniel, imagine you're in his shoes. If I had been Daniel, I would have been tempted to spend my time and energy focused on all the things outside my control, complaining about what a bad leader Nebuchadnezzar was, blaming the exile for all of my unhappiness, feeling sorry for myself, critiquing reality to anyone who would listen. You ever known somebody that's like that? But this is not what Daniel did. In the beginning of, of this story, it's the Babylonians. It's King Nebuchadnezzar that has determined everything. Nebuchadnezzar determined to conquer Israel and determined to cart off its highest potential citizens and enroll them in like his Babylonian leadership academy. So let's pick up the story in, in verse 3. Here we go. It says, Then the king, which would be Nebuchadnezzar, ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility. Young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning. This is just reminding me of Joey Bowie, really. I, <laughs> Well-informed, quick to understand, and, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He, he was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them, and here's where it gets good, the king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that were, were to enter the king's service, like as a part of the royal court. So to this point, everything that has happened to Daniel has been out of his control. To this point, everything has been ordered by somebody else. To this point, the choices have been those of Nebuchadnezzar. But this, you guys, this is where the story turns. And now it's Daniel who chooses. It's Daniel who resolves something. Verse 8. But Daniel resolved. That's really important. We can always resolve. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. I mean, if you're going to exercise freedom, would that be what you would do? I don't know. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. To this point in the story, lots of stuff has happened to Daniel, stuff that he never wanted, stuff that he was unable to prevent from happening. Like his life had spun totally out of control. But here we read that Daniel resolved. And it's a strong word reserved for a firm decision. Like he resolved in his heart that he would honor God. He spent his time thinking about what he most valued and desired. Like he strategized. He was, he was realistic about obstacles. He had a conversation with the royal Babylonian official, like the dean of the school, who was under great pressure in his job to, to turn these people into like world leaders. And he looked for a a, a solution that would appeal to this guy as well. So Daniel went to the dean of the school to talk about the menu. He explained that, that everybody was being fed filet mignon and pork tenderloin and beer sausage and cheese charcuterie, <laughs> right? And he wants to go vegan. So he would forgo the world-class wine and, and, then, and just eat like, uh, uh, you know, carrots and celery. 
Now, the story doesn't say why the food would defile Daniel. Maybe it was in violation of Jewish ceremonial law. Maybe the meats had been offered to idols. The writer is less interested in the dietary details of all this. What he's interested in is Daniel chose. And when you find yourself a prisoner to circumstances, you have to find a way to express your freely held deepest values. Daniel acted. He resolved to exercise freedom of choice. He found a way to reclaim his initiative and to reclaim his personhood. And Daniel's actions in this scenario took enormous courage. Uh, And the reason is Nebuchadnezzar was not the kind of leader who cut people a lot of slack. One time a a puppet king in Israel named Zedekiah rebelled against him. And Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah's sons, all of his sons, killed right in front of him. And when that was done, immediately following that, he, he had his eyes put out. Nebuchadnezzar was famous for his temper, for his brutality. He was not the kind of guy that you could reason with. He was not known for patience or compassion or his incredibly, uh, you know, incredible like relational, emotional IQ. Um, I kind of like John Orberg sums up the tension of refusing to eat the king's food with this. He says, you've heard of leaders with hands-on or hands-off management styles? Nebuchadnezzar had a heads-off management style. When people crossed him, he cut off their heads. Your boss may be tough, but when Nebuchadnezzar terminated people, he terminated people. Uh, And this explains why the dean of the school was so reluctant to to grant Daniel's request. He told Daniel that if he he let him switch to, to just like veggies and water, Daniel might start getting emaciated, and then the king would have the dean's head. And so at that point, we see Daniel's persistence and we sort of see his street smarts. He says to himself, well, that was not exactly a yes, but not exactly a no either. So he went to the guard, okay, like the next level down, and proposed an experiment. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, okay, his, his friends, fellow Jews taken along with him from Israel, He says, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. And treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. Now imagine what those 10 days were like for everybody involved. For 10 days, Daniel's future hung in the balance. But notice, Daniel is not, he's not like flying completely blind here. He has no guarantee of how this will all work out, but he does know something. In verse 9, we're told, Now God had caused the official, okay, the dean of the school, to show favor and compassion to Daniel. Now God. Now God had caused. We can't lose sight of the significance of that little statement, now God. God was up to something. Daniel did not know ahead of time how things were all going to turn out, but he came to trust that he was not operating in this situation alone. Sometimes we shrink back from resolving in our hearts because we just don't know how things are going to work out. But we forget the now God factor. So as the story continues, God keeps moving. At the end of the 10 days, 
they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. Right? Okay, so after 10 days, Daniel and his friends looked vibrant and they looked fresh and they looked stronger and healthier and more agile and their acne started to go away, right? And so the school officials were like, dang, like that's amazing. Uh, We're going to put the whole school on that diet. So they took away everybody's steak and lamb and and cheese and, and they sent back all the fine wines and they made every student in the Babylonian school eat only vegetables and drink only water. I don't imagine that made Daniel very popular at school. But the school officials loved it. They they like named Daniel the valedictorian. And Daniel and his friends take a major risk here to do what's right. And they don't know how it's all going to go, but God moves. Now, this is kind of what's fascinating to think about. As they would go on through life, Daniel and his friends would have to make some very tough decisions. And it seems God used this event to build a foundation of faith. When when they were told to bow down and and worship the king or be thrown into the fiery furnace, right? They said, throw us into the furnace. We will not bow. When Daniel was told, stop praying to your God or you'll be thrown to the lions. He said, well, then I guess you're going to have to throw me to the lions because there's no way I'm going to stop praying to my God. But if Daniel and his friends had not found a way to take some action early on, if they had not declared to the world and to themselves where their deepest allegiances belonged, they may have lacked the strength to face the furnace and to face the lion's den, right? Sometimes when we're facing uncertainty and really tough decisions, one of the best things that we can do is look backward. Identify ways that God has already worked in our lives. Ways that he's carried us through things before. So I just want to pause here and ask you, what are you facing in your life right now? Like, where is there uncertainty? Where might doing the right thing cost you something? If you're facing something like that, how have you seen God move in your past? How have you seen God be faithful to you already? Did did he send you some people to help walk you through it? Did Did he send you strength that you didn't know you had? Did he draw you closer to him in a way that brought peace? Did maybe something unexpected happen? Maybe something beautiful that you just didn't see coming? When you have faced frustration or disappointment or uncertainty or fear, or maybe a situation where you felt totally stuck before, a time when you weren't sure how you'd get through it, and yet God met you and he carried you through it somehow. Daniel decided in the middle of so much that was completely outside his control, there was something he could do, something he must do. He couldn't make his circumstances everything that he wanted, but he did have choices. He did have moves to make. Okay. I want you guys to imagine something with me for a second. I want you to imagine that you know someone like a, a friend or a sibling or a parent or a coworker or a neighbor. A neighbor. Like, ima- so imagine this person. This is an imaginary person that you spend time with, imaginarily. <laughs> imagine that this imaginary person hasn't faced anywhere near the external challenges that Daniel faced. 
but internally, they are much unhappier about life. Maybe they're totally discontent about their job. They feel like they should be given more. They should be stretched and they should be offered more authority. And, and they're convinced that their, their supervisor just doesn't see their potential and they're underappreciated and they're not allowed to fully uh, uh, develop their gifts and, and their workplace is so political, so political. And so it's too political for them to ever get promoted. So you suggest to this person, well, what if you were to try to find another job? Like, why not look at other companies or apply for a promotion or maybe transfer to another department or just go another direction altogether? Maybe go back to school and get more education. But this person has a response for every idea you throw out there. Just like, no way. Couldn't. Just wouldn't work. Taking another job would be too risky. Transferring to another department would just bring more of the same. You know what? Politics are everywhere, man. Education would be a waste of time. It would take too much time and money and, and probably wouldn't pay off in the end. And besides, the person says, I'm too old for all that anyway. So this person lives with grandiose dreams of what he or she should be doing, but even with your support and encouragement, refuses to take a single step from where they are right now. Not a single step. Can't do it. Just can't do it. Would never work. This person also wants to be in a romantic relationship. So they develop infatuations with people from a distance. And those people are more or less in the supermodel category, and this person's not in that same classification. <laughs> and so they refuse to form any kind of realistic relationship. They pass by anything that could actually turn into something. They're waiting for Mr. or Mrs. Wright to just fall out of the sky. They want the perfect person with the perfect relationship, and they just live in the land of unicorns and rainbows. And so you think to yourself, maybe I could recommend a, a counselor to help. Maybe talking to someone who knows what they're doing would be really good. Maybe it would help them take uh, forward, like tangible steps, embrace some healthy movement in their life. But you know exactly what they would say if you, if you threw that out there. You're like, nah, counselors are expensive. It, it, it would cost way too much. Well, what if I help cover the, some of the costs? What if I covered all of the costs? Well, it would also take up, I don't, I don't have time, like it would take way too much time. Well, maybe I could sit down with you and we could look at your calendar and we could sort through that and find some time. And I could babysit your kids for you and I could come over and help you with some of the stuff around the house to free up time for you. Well, that's nice of you, but you know, counsel, the counselor stuff never really helps anyway. Have you ever seen one? No, but it just never really helps. I, I don't think a counselor would ever really understand me. This person doesn't like their life very much, right? Sometimes they blame, they blame God for it. And sometimes you just want to grab them by the shirt and say, this is your one and only life, and you're letting it pass you by. You're throwing it away one opportunity after another, day after day, month after month, year after year. My goodness, you have to like get out there and do something. Take a step, take responsibility, start moving. 
This person is living as if they are utterly helpless to take any action. They're waiting for something outside of them to just swoop in and change their life, to change their circumstances and suddenly bring them all the happiness that, they, that they're longing for. And every time a small or large opportunity comes, they respond the same way. I, I couldn't possibly. Okay, here's my guess. For some of you, this imaginary person is not so imaginary. For some of you, as, as I describe this person, a very real person from your very real life came flooding to your mind. Now, here's some advice. If that person is sitting next to you, resist the urge to elbow them or to point or make eye contact. Look straight ahead right now. And here's a little more advice. You don't want to be that person. You don't want to be that person. Um, and I will tell you this. I have been that person many times in my life. Now, thankfully, God gave me a wife that has a strong bias toward action. <laughs> and so, and I'm serious about this. She has actually, for the last couple of decades, opened my eyes to how much is possible how much can happen if I just start moving? And so I, I have grown a ton in this regard. But still, there's something in me that has a strong bias toward inaction. If I don't know exactly how it's all going to go and there's no success guaranteed and all that, I'm like, eh, I don't know. John's like, eh. So <laughs> it's because you are a lion. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Roar. I was going to try to do some golden retriever uh, move, but I don't even know what that would look like. <laughs> so often, you guys, what happens is we are just, we're just utterly unrealistic about how life actually works. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite all-time authors is John Ortberg, and he, he writes this. He says, sometimes people will ask me, how can I become a writer? I tell them how it usually works. Write an article. Submit it to a journal, get rejected, submit it some more, get rejected some more, write another one, submit it, get rejected again, learn how to edit, get an article accepted, repeat the process about a hundred times, get asked to write a few chapters in a book for someone, co-write a book with someone else, keep learning. So sometimes I will get this response. No, I, I don't want to go that route. I've already written a book. I just need to find a publisher who will take it and sell more copies than the Da Vinci Code and Harry Potter put together. <laughs> Good luck with that, he says. One of the most soul-crushing experience, like experiences in life is the sense that what I do makes no difference at all. Some of the most important research into depression over the last many decades was a series of experiments that showed it is brought on by a sense of what psychologists call learned helplessness. Um, so the classic discovery of this came from like experiments with dogs. Now, if you're a dog lover, you might want to plug your ears for a second. Um, experimenters gave groups of dogs a series of small electric shocks. Some learned that they could stop the shocks by jumping over a wall. Other dogs were given shocks at random, so no matter what they did, it didn't matter. 
And the second group began to very quickly lay down and just give up. But here's, here's where it gets interesting. Here's the big discovery. Later on, the dogs from the second group were, were put in the environment of the first group. They were put in the environment where jumping over the wall actually would have stopped the shocks. But after experiencing the random shocks that they couldn't stop, they had learned that they were helpless. And so they never made any effort to do anything to change their situation. Human beings are just as vulnerable to the state of learned helplessness. Psychologists have discovered that in concentration camps or prisoner of war environments, the greatest difference between people who give up and those who remain resilient is a sense that they can still control something. Those that survive and make it through are those that find a way to make choices. The same concept has been documented like in nursing homes, retirement homes, like even small choices, like being able to decide which time in the day I might want to see a movie or how to arrange my own room and my space, made seniors, made seniors' health and emotional well-being improve. And, and this is kind of crazy, it reduced the death rate. So in exile in Babylon, Daniel was able to flourish. He was able to find a way to flourish. And here's the reality for all of us. We will all, like Daniel, spend some time in Babylon. We will all end up in places we don't want to be. Could be the loss of health. Could be that a career goes sideways. Could be that a a marriage grows cold. Could be that a dream dies or just an opportunity fades. But the key question is never, what have I lost? What, What can't I control? The key question in that situation becomes, where can I still make choices that matter? When we identify those arenas and step into them, something in us begins to come alive. Some of you heard of um, Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a highly respected psychiatrist in Vienna, but he lost everything when the Nazis rose to power. They took his home, career, and freedom. His parents, brother, and wife, his entire family except for his sister, were all killed in the gas chambers. Frankl spent years in Auschwitz where he was beaten, starved, and brutalized. When he saw his fellow prisoners, where he saw his fellow prisoners, like his friends, die daily. And the suffering and the torture inflicted on Frankl are, they're unimaginable. I mean, he was made to compete with other prisoners for scraps of food made to work in the snow with no shoes, made to watch the random execution of friends just on the whims of guards, never knowing from one day to the next if he'd be forced to shovel out the ashes that had the day before been his friend's bodies or if tomorrow he would be a part of the ashes. Gradually, emaciated, naked, humiliated, sick, without reasonable hope of liberation or reunion with any loved ones, Frankel began to realize that there actually was one freedom left to him. He saw how some prisoners, just noticed how some prisoners, even though they were starving, would offer little bits of bread to others. They would try to comfort those that were even weaker than they were. 
And he came to realize something that he later wrote on the other side. He was a survivor of the concentration camps. He wrote, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And right there in that camp, amidst what could be described as hell on earth, Frankel began to make decisions. Every day he made decisions. He chose to cherish the thought of those he loved. As a doctor, he chose to help others as much as he could. He, he looked for, for ways to exercise freedom. He grew very conscious about making choices, choosing what he would think about, choosing what memories he would dwell on, choosing what words he would speak and how he would say them, choosing to help those that were suffering around him, choosing how he would walk and how he would hold his head eye. He made choice after choice after choice, day after day after day for years. And I can't imagine walking through that kind of hell. Like, I just, I can't even fathom that. But Frankel wrote all about his experience in the camp and what carried him. And he explains that as his, as his mindset changed, he began to make more and more choices that mattered. And he just felt his freedom expand. Uh, one writer commenting on the strange experience Frankel had in the camp, in awe of his perseverance and resilience, just put it like this. He said his guards had more liberty. They could leave the camp, walk where they chose, spend what they wanted. But Frankel lived with greater freedom. While it may not look like Auschwitz or, or the exile of the people of Israel, the reality of life is this. We all spend time in Babylon. And I think in COVID, this has become very real to all of us. We, we all have, we've all lost things that matter to us. We've all been places that we don't want to be. And my guess is that many of you are, are currently in Babylon in some arena of your life. And maybe you're finding that like parenting is harder than you ever imagined. Or, or maybe you want to be a parent and that hasn't happened for you. Or maybe your marriage feels like Babylon right now. Or maybe you've pursued a dream and it's been a really big deal to you and it's just not working out and it's becoming more and more obvious to you that it is not going to work out. Maybe your body's falling apart and it's likely to continue. Or maybe you've lost someone that you love, right? Babylon. Some of you are in a place in some arena of your life that you never wanted to be and there's no easy way out. It's reality. It's Babylon. We all spend time in Babylon, but even there, we have choices that matter. You can choose to love and serve the people that are in Babylon with you. You can choose to think about what you need to think about, to remember what you need to remember, the things that will feed your mind. And while you may not be able to just like walk out of Babylon and head back to your homeland where you really want to be, you still have a ton of choices that you can make, and those choices matter. You still have action that you can take, and that action matters. Because that action, not only does it create momentum and create something, but it keeps you from sinking into helplessness. So you got to find a way to make choices. Pick some area where, where you can take action. 
But also remember the, the now God reality of Babylon. Even in Babylon, God is with you and God is working. In fact, Jesus expressed that God is with those that are hurting in a, in a very special way. God is with those that are having a Babylon experience. You listen to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The now God factor is very real in Babylon. God is present with the hurting and the broken in a special way. And when you resolve to honor God in your heart, he becomes involved in your life in, in ways that you, you cannot now foresee. Father in heaven, I think about this season and I think about how many of those that I know best and love most are walking through so much junk where life has gone a direction they don't want it to go and it's, it, it doesn't look like the, the end is near, if ever. And God, I just, as I think about this, I just think about the reality of learned helplessness and how many times in my life I've just sort of relegated to, to there's nothing I can do, there's, there's no impact I can have. There's, but the reality is there's always choices to make. There's always action to take. Not that it completely changes our circumstances, but it brings life and it brings joy and it brings connection with you. And so God, I pray that you would help all of us when we are in those Babylon seasons of life or those arenas of life to see the choices that are actually on the table for us and to step into those choices with faith and with trust in you and with confidence. God, would you, would you enable us to make the choices that we can make, to have the kind of impact that we can have, and to do it with you along the way. Amen.